0: Uh, this should make us realize that the Antichrist will ultimately be like Satan. He will act a lot like Satan. But Satan, of course, sometimes disguises himself as an angel of light. And if he does, so do his ministers. He comes, and he will come initially as a peacemaker. He'll be Mr. Nice Guy. But eventually, he will take off Mr. Nice Guy mask, and he will operate with evil, wicked power, and with a viciousness and a cruelty that this world has never, ever seen.
1: Welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy, Senior Pastor of Community Bible Church in Beaufort, South Carolina. Today is part two of Pastor Carl's sermon entitled, The Great Religious Reset. In today's sermon, Dr. Brogi addresses how this global religion will destroy the saints of God. Revelation chapter 13 verse 7 says, It was also given to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them, and authority over every tribe and people and tongue and nation was given to him. Remember that the Antichrist will not overcome believers in a spiritual sense, but he will in a physical sense. And for the genuine saints of God, they will experience persecution like never before. Let's join Pastor Carl in Revelation chapter 13, verse seven, as he continues.
0: Notice he comes up out of the sea, the sea, it's articular. So what sea is he referring to? The Galilean sea, the red sea, the dead sea? No, the great sea, the Mediterranean sea. How do we know that? Look at verse two and the beast which I saw was like a leopard And his feet were like those of a bear and his mouth like the mouth of a lion. And the dragon gave him his power and his throne and great authority. John is using the identical imagery that the prophet Daniel uses describing that region of the world that the Roman Empire encompassed. It's from that region that this beast will come. And so here's a map of what the Roman Empire looked like in John's day. And here's a map of what it looks like in our day. Here's just the nations with different names on them. So both Daniel and Revelation teach that the Antichrist will come out of the former Roman Empire. And that's important, not only geographically, but it's important in terms of the kind of person he'll be. Uh, People will often ask, well, if the Antichrist," comes out of this coalition from the former Roman Empire, does that mean he's a Gentile? And so we examined that last time. No, he will be a Jew. Ask any Jew today, do you think that the Messiah could be a Gentile? They'll laugh at you. What? He's going to be a Jew. That's what the Old Testament scriptures teach. He's from a descendant of Abraham, he's from the tribe of Judah, and he's from the family of David. They're not looking for some Gentile. They're looking for a Jew. And so we saw last time, biblically, Zechariah chapter 11, verses 15 and 16, how they entertained a false Christ. Why? It's written of prophetically by the prophet Zechariah. Why? Because of their unbelief. And Jesus made the same statement in John chapter 5, verse 43. He said, I have come in my father's name, and you did not receive me. If another shall come in his own name, you will receive him. Because they rejected the good shepherd, they will embrace a false shepherd. Now, if you remember, there are two words in the original language for Another. There's alos, which means another of a similar or the same kind. And there's the word heteros, giving us our prefix heterosexual or heterodoxy. Heterosexual means different sexes. Heterodoxy speaks in contrast to orthodoxy, to what is true. It's something different. And so he doesn't use the word heteros, but he uses the word alos. There's one who is coming who's going to be like me in what sense? He'll be a Jew. He'll be from the tribe of Judah. He'll be from the house of David. In his name that John uses, he's called the Antichrist, or in this chapter, the beast. Now, it's not by accident that we speak of the Antichrist. Remember, Christos, Christ, Messiah, Messiah, same word, two languages, Antichrist, Anti- the prefix is used in the New Testament of something that's the opposite of or something that comes in the place of. And certainly both are used of this particular man. He's the opposite of Jesus. How did Jesus come? He came in the spirit's power. He emptied himself in the sense that Paul writes to the Philippians and that he had laid aside the use of his divine attributes. Did he give up his divine attributes? No. He was still omniscient. All those things were true of it, but he laid aside the exercise of those divine attributes to depend upon the Spirit of God to minister through him, because that's one of the things Messiah would do. The Spirit of God is upon me. I love the hymn, He emptied Himself of all but love. That's not entirely true, but knowing and having read some of Charles Wesley's theology, I know what he meant by that. But he didn't give up any of his divine attributes. In some churches, they won't sing that hymn for that single phrase. No, he was as much God in the incarnation as he was in eternity past. But he chose to operate in the Spirit's power. What will the Antichrist do? He'll operate in the devil's power. So he comes up out of the sea. That identifies the geographical area that he comes from. But he also, as Revelation 11 informs us, he comes up out of the abyss. That speaks of his demonic power. He's a real human, but he's empowered by the evil one. We read here, and the dragon, that's Satan, remember, gave him his power and his throne and great authority. He gives him his power, his strength, his abilities, he gives him his throne, he receives dominion over the world, and third, he has great authority, and it's a word exousia, to basically to do as you please. So the Antichrist will do as he pleases, why? Because the single most powerful fallen angel in human history, in all of recorded biblical history, Satan will empower him. Now this should make us realize that the Antichrist will ultimately be like Satan. He will act a lot like Satan. But Satan, of course, sometimes disguises himself as an angel of light. And if he does, so don't his ministers. He comes, and he will come initially as a peacemaker. He'll be Mr. Nice Guy. But eventually, he will take off Mr. Nice Guy mask, and he will Operate with evil, wicked power and with a viciousness and a cruelty that this world has never, ever seen. So we read now in verse 3, notice, I saw one of his heads as if it had been slain and his fatal wound was healed and the whole earth was amazed and followed after the beast. I saw one as if it had been slain. It means in the original grammatical structure of the Greek, he was literally slaughtered. Now, sometimes Christians kind of kick at that because they understand what Jesus said, that a mark of his deity is he alone has the power to raise people from the dead. And so here's this man who comes, and he's dead, but he's brought back to life. So some Christians would say, well, he wasn't really dead. He just kind of fake death. No, he was dead. In fact, the same construction is used. If you don't know Greek, don't ever be intimidated by someone who uses Greek on you because you can almost always figure it out out of the English text. In Revelation 5, 6, John writes, And I saw between the throne with the four living creatures and the elders a lamb standing as if slain. Identical construction of words. Was Jesus at one point literally dead? Yes. But he was raised. But he was more than raised, he was resurrected. And so if you were here last time, we looked at eight passages in the Bible where people were dead but were raised to life. Lazarus, maybe the most famous, Tabitha, Eutychus, so many. Elijah raised someone, Elisha did, someone fell on Elisha's bones, came back to life. Eight different people. But all of those eight died again and were buried again. And yet Jesus was the first one ever to be resurrected from the dead. And because he is the firstborn of the dead, he can make this statement in John five twenty one for just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son also gives life to whom he pleases. We sang that this morning. So what happens to the Antichrist? He's raised to life. It's a miracle. But he's not resurrected. Paul can say that Jesus is the first one ever. He's the first fruits of all creation. He is the first one ever to come out of the grave in a resurrected body. So I saw one of his heads as if it had been slain, and his fatal wound was healed. And the earth was amazed and followed after the beast. And this, of course, will accelerate his one-world influence. And so we read in verse 4, they worship the dragon, Satan. Why? Because he gave his authority to the beast. And so the miracle of the Antichrist coming back to life is going to lead to a more direct satanic worship. And that was always Satan's dream. Isaiah 14, Ezekiel 28, he sought the worship of man. He even offered the Lord Jesus. They are in the time of the temptation. Bow down and worship me and I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world because they were his to give at that point because when Adam lost them, Satan acquired them and so he's called the God small g of this world. But the world will worship the evil one. It will be his highest achievement, his finest hour and he will use this counter-miracle to really whack at the very foundations of the Christian faith that we preach. Now, that's all by way of introduction. You're saying, when are you going to get started? Hold on to your pew belts. Here we go. There's a note-taking outline. Um, first, we want to begin. We're going to look at three truths that are brought out in this section of Scripture concerning this great religious reset. First, the global religion will defy the God of heaven. This coming global religion that is forming will defy the God of heaven. Look now at verse 5. There was given to him a mouth speaking arrogant words, and blasphemies and authority to act for 42 months was given to him. Now, you'll remember, again, as this chart shows you, the tribulation period is seven years long. There is this event right in the middle of the seven years. Jesus said, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of through the prophet Daniel, we studied it from 2 Thessalonians 2 and from Daniel 9, where the phrase originates. And, of course, Paul tells us that he will go into a rebuilt temple. He will oppose and exalt himself above every so-called god or object of worship. He'll take his seat in the temple of God, and he'll claim to be God. Now, here's a chart, by the way, that might be useful to you. Uh, As you would expect, since the Spirit of God inspired not only Daniel but John, There's a consistency all the way through Scripture. I was witnessing to a Mormon lady with her children this week, and I said, look, there's a big difference between the Book of Mormon and the Bible. Number one, there's no fulfilled prophecy in the Book of Mormon. Number two, the Book of Mormon and the Bible cannot both be true. For instance, the Book of Mormon said Jesus would be born in Jerusalem. The prophets of old and the New Testament affirm he would be born and was born in Bethlehem. I said there are actually over 1,000 changes between the 1830 edition of the Book of Mormon that Dr. Walter Martin did a fantastic job documenting. And he wrote a book, a classic on Mormonism and other cults called The Kingdom of the Cults. But between the 1830 edition and now the seventh edition of the Book of Mormon, there are over 1,000 changes. Now I'm not talking about linguistic changes. There's 100,000 changes between the 1611 King James and what we call typically today. Those are language changes that reflect language updates because the English language has changed so much and so a good translation says, what word today represents that word? I'm talking about 1,000 errors direct contradictions between the 1830 edition of the Book of Mormon and the current edition they use. There are no such things in the Bible, no errors. It's infallible. And so Daniel speaks of a time, times, and half a time. That's like saying a year plus two years plus half a year, Daniel 7.25. He also speaks of the tribulation period being divided into three and a half years. The Revelation uses the term 42 months. It also uses, like Daniel, 1260 days. So the Antichrist will take off his nice guy, peace negotiator, wonderful leader, mankind kind of mask, and he'll go into the temple and claim to be God, and evil will unfold. And so again, we read in verse 5, there was given to him, he can only do what God allows him to do, it was given to him a mouth speaking arrogant words and blasphemies, and authority to act for 42 months was given to him by the way, this is precisely what we study concerning the Antichrist when we work through the prophet Daniel. Remember, Daniel is writing approximately 700 years before John. John writes the very last book in the New Testament. You might want to put out in the margin Daniel 1136 next to verse 5, and let me read it to you. Daniel 1136, that prophet wrote, Then the king will do as he pleases. And he will exalt and magnify himself above every God and will speak monstrous things against the God of gods. And so, this coming Antichrist is a blasphemer. And Revelation 13 illustrates and amplifies what Daniel writes about. He's going to come with braggadocious words, he's going to come with blasphemous words. He'll be a great speaker. Read the second half of Daniel 11. It's actually one of the most complete biographical sketches on the coming Antichrist. We don't usually think of the Old Testament that way, but the second half of Daniel 11, and I have some messages on it if you're interested, unfold a whole character sketch on him. He has a big mouth. He captures audiences. He will come with a passion, with an intellect. He'll get people to believe that up is down, that black is white. He'll get you to sell your mother into slavery, and you're thinking that you're serving God he is evil beyond evil in fact his power and those that work with him are so great jesus said that the elect would be deceived if that were possible but it's not furthermore in verse six and he opened his mouth this beast this antichrist in blasphemies against god to blaspheme his name in his tabernacle that is those who dwell in heaven so this man of sin is the very mouth of hell when he speaks hell speaks Blasphemies, is blasphema. Oh, that's when you take something that is holy and you speak of it as evil. And so our president in the last two weeks has been harping on again the rights of transgender people. Look, I'm not against transgender people. I want them to be saved. And my heart is just breaking for some of these children where you have doctors mutilating their bodies and giving them drugs And then to see some of them wake up one day and realize what they've done, and they're heartbroken. They say, well, we need to let this happen or they'll commit suicide. No, you're causing them to commit suicide by the evil. 20 years ago, those doctors that did such a thing would be arrested for child abuse. But you see, we live in a day of an upside-down mind. We rejected God. We didn't want anything to do with God. That's one of the aspects of this coming global economy, religiously. They will worship the creation rather than the God who's blessed. We said in the 1960s, we're going to worship the God of evolution, so to speak. God didn't create the world. It just all happened and came together through a Big Bang. The only Big Bang in Scripture is the one that comes at the end where God's going to blow up the world and make a new heaven and a new earth. And so I remember my fourth grade teacher, Miss Weeks, telling me, I don't believe this, but I have to teach it. It had been in place, but now it was being put into shoe leather. And so I was taught evolution. And then a short throw later, prayer was outlawed. Reading of the Bible was outlawed. Another case, the Ten Commandments couldn't be on the walls. And so do we do. We had to put policemen in the halls. There are no police on campuses when I was a child. What have we done? We've rejected the living God. We've worshiped. The creation rather than the creator. That's Charles Schwab, as we'll see in a moment. That's the World Economic Forum. And so God gave us over to immorality, sensuality. That was the 70s and 80s. Did we repent? No, so God gave us over to phase two, to homosexuality. Did we repent? No, so God gave us over stage three to a reprobate mind, an upside down mind. And so we have these people who are espousing things that are just wicked things. And that's what this man will do. He will spout wicked things, blasphemies against the living God. We're made in the image of God. God created us male and female. There's no middle gender. So when these people have babies and they say, well, what do you have? We don't know. You don't know? Well, we need to wait and see. Maybe your kindergarten teacher will tell us what we have. Oh, come on. God created people male and female. This is absurd what is happening in our nation. And of course, next week, it was supposed to happen, the Senate, it passed in the House, is gonna vote on whether or not, because they're afraid of what the Supreme Court may do, so they wanna pass a law and define by law in the Senate and in the House that marriage between two homosexual people are legal but they kicked it down the road until after the midterms. I don't want to tell you if they pass that. We'll have the Supreme Court, the judicial branch. We will have the congressional branch. And no doubt our president will sign it. All three branches of the U.S. government redefining marriage. And if you think it's bad now, that will be the final nail in our coffin. God help us. So he opened his mouth in blasphemies to blaspheme his name and his tabernacle unto to those who dwell in heaven. But you see, God is going to use the horrors of the tribulation to bring the Jewish people to faith in Christ. Remember, it's called the time of Jacob's trouble in the Old Testament. And the chief function of the 70th week of Daniel's prophecy is, among other things, the conversion of the Jews. Remember, Moses wrote of this in Deuteronomy 4. When you are in distress and all these things have come upon you, in the latter days, you will return to the Lord your God and listen to his voice. Likewise, Zechariah the prophet looks down the corridors of time to when the Jews will embrace the Messiah whom they rejected. I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication so that they will look on me whom they have pierced. And they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son and they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping of a firstborn." Again, this is precisely what Jesus taught is recorded in Matthew's gospel and in Luke's gospel. Matthew, if you remember, reminds us that when Jesus on Palm Sunday came into Jerusalem, he wept over the city because he officially presented himself on the 173,880th day of Daniel's prophecy and they ended up rejecting him. And so he said, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stone those who are sent to hear how often I wanted to gather your children together. The way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you are unwilling. And as predicted by Daniel, and this happened in 70 AD, Jesus said, behold, your house is being left to you desolate. And then Jesus makes this remarkable prophecy concerning the Jewish people. For I say to you, from now on, you will not see me until... You say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Look, the rapture of the church can happen at any moment. But the second coming of Jesus to the earth cannot happen. It cannot happen until they say, Baruch, Habab, Hashem, Adonai. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, don't get lost in this forest of theology. When the Antichrist steps on the scene and he commits the abomination of desolation in a rebuilt temple, making himself out to be God, and we'll see something else that will accompany that that will lead to the eyes of the Jewish people being opened. All hell is going to break loose. Verse 6 says, And he opened his mouth in blasphemies against God to blaspheme his name and his tabernacle and those who dwell in heaven. Again, they will call what is holy evil. And he will blaspheme God's tabernacle on those who dwell in heaven. Contextually, he's talking about people who had their heads cut off. And what is he going to say? Oh, you know, all these Christians, look what happened to them. They didn't follow me. And he'll make fun of them. The global religion will defy the God of heaven. Secondly, the global religion will destroy the saints of God. Not only will it defy the God of heaven, it will destroy the saints of God. Now, when you see the word saints in the New Testament and register this, especially in the Revelation, ask what context is the word being used? The Lord speaks about the saints of the Lord, by the psalmist in the Old Testament. The Bible speaks of church saints. It speaks of tribulation saints. It speaks of coming millennial saints. So every time you see the word saint, it's not always in reference to the church. Look at verse seven. It was given to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. So verse six indicates Satan cannot harm the glorified saints that are in heaven who are in the tabernacle of God. So what does he do? He goes after those who are not sealed with a special seal on the earth. Remember, there's 144,000 Jews that cannot be killed. You could drop an atomic bomb on them and you couldn't kill them. These are God's missionaries who will preach the gospel to every tribe, tongue, and nation. They will pull off what we haven't been able to do. And so Jesus says, this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached to the whole world and then the end shall come. He's talking about what's going to happen during the tribulation period. John documents that in Revelation 7. The gospel will go out to the whole world. So he can't kill those 144,000, can't even harm the two witnesses that will preach from the temple mount until it's time for them to be hurt. They're killed and they stand, they're laid there on the streets for a few days. The world celebrates and then they're brought up into heaven. But he can go after the rest of those people, tribulation saints. John has already mentioned this, put out in the margin, Revelation six eleven. Let me read it to you. And there was given to each of them a white robe. And they were told that they should rest for a little while longer, until the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who were to be killed even as they had been would be completed also. So these are the tribulation saints who are dying, and how are they killed? Revelation 20, verse four, their heads are cut off. You won't renounce Jesus? That's it. Now, let me just say parenthetically here, notice they receive a white robe. And I hope you have a white robe waiting for you. You only have one if you've received Jesus as Lord. It speaks of the righteousness that is gifted. You need a righteousness that you can't earn. It has to be imputed, it has to be gifted to you. They are in white robes. And by the way, they are not in their resurrection bodies. Look, when I go to the funeral home and people are deep in grief and they say, oh, my loved one, he's up in heaven dancing in his new resurrection body, all these statements. It's not the time typically to correct them. I just let them grieve. I grieve with them. But they're not in their resurrection body. They're given some kind of temporary body. The tribulation saints, like the Old Testament saints, they're not resurrected until Daniel 12, 1 and 2, the end of the seven years. The first that will get resurrection bodies will be the church saints. But they are given some kind of robe. So you say, if I die, do I just meet this disembodied spirit and I don't know who they are? No, you will recognize them. Just like Moses and Elijah were recognizable in the Mount of Transfiguration, so were your loved ones. But that's not their resurrection body. Moses and Elijah and Enoch aren't in resurrected bodies. You say, wait a minute, Enoch and Elijah were carried up into heaven. Moses was buried. They're not in their resurrection bodies Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. This mortality must put on immortality. This perishable must put on the imperishable.
1: If you enjoyed today's message, remember that you can order a CD or DVD copy by calling Search the Scriptures at 877-787-7478 and requesting program God's Prophetic Schedule 015. Remember that you can also support the ministry of Search the Scriptures by calling or you can give online at searchthescriptures.org. Your generous donation plays an important role in providing biblical teaching and spreading the gospel. We hope that you will join us next week as we continue to search the scriptures.